Welcome to the Classroom Podcast, the book club discussion on the classic political philosophy. My name is Eric Nganyange. I'm your host and the student in this class, sitting here with the one and only Professor Ron Klein. How are you? I'm blessed and highly favored. How are you feeling? Uh, I'm delighted to be here, as I always am. I'm excited to be talking about the Constitution. Again. As we have been doing for how many years now? (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, Article 2, the Constitution Executive Branch. Section 1, set up the Executive Branch. Section 2, 3, and 4, talks about Electoral College. The sticking point. (laughs) Get right to the tough ones. I mean, yeah, we got to get to it. Yeah. Uh, Explain to the fifth graders what is Electoral College and why did the framers want it to have that in the Constitution? Well, let's first say what the Electoral College is. That's a group of people that have been elected from each of the 50 states, and the number from each state is equal to the number of representatives they have in the federal house. Right? In the Senate? Or is it not both of them? Well, now I'm going to have to look. Oh, okay. okay. I think it's the representatives because it's supposed to be population specific. Okay. But we'll, we'll check that out. So we have these people collected together. They get to vote on president and vice president because they come in together. And how do they vote? So the electors, as we've said, are equal to the number of senators and representatives. You caught me again. And each of the electors gets to vote. So the total will be, these days, 535. Okay. Right? 435 House and 100 senators. Okay. So 535. It's got to be the total. Okay. The person that gets a majority, people, because two people are involved on each party, Whoever gets the most wins, mm. and the most is 271 now, I believe. So that's how it goes. And so, therefore, it is proportional to the populations. So in Iowa, we have four congressional districts, and we get two senators. So mm-hmm. we have how many electoral votes? Four plus two is six. Mm-hmm. So we get six. when our, And we elect those. When you actually vote, you go For into— president. Yeah, yeah. you're really voting for an elector to support that person, mm. right? Mm-hmm. That's sort of the tricky part of it. Yeah. You think you're voting for President, President X, right? And you're really voting for an elector yeah. who will vote for President X on your behalf. So it's a little complex, but the, the principles are fairly simple. We'll cast votes for president. That'll be a proxy for electors. And the electors unless they go off on their own, vote the way the state went. So let's say we've got six representatives, right? And let's say, let's say the vote is essentially tied. President candidate X would get three of our votes, and Y would get three. So if, if presidential candidate X gets six, they will get all of the votes from Iowa. So when you see on TV, they're adding up those electoral votes, and they say... Iowa goes to... Either goes or is tied, or or maybe they have a way of of 
partitioning votes. I think one state does. But they'll say, well, Iowa voted for X, right? And that means that the majority of electors, electors will vote for X. The process is more complex than the principle. Okay. Right? Basically, if you vote, most people vote for President X, a portion, whatever the portion is, of our electoral votes go to President X. So it's as if we voted our vote counted for President X okay. within the context of our state. Correct. So how does the electors get chosen, I guess, or get picked? Uh, that's, that, it depends on how the state sets it up. Okay. Right? Often they're just, their group of electors are chosen, often reasonably prominent politicians in the state, not like governors and those kind of people, but maybe they're the deputy secretary of energy for the state. Or they're just, you know, a, a person who was a strong supporter in Saragordo County of Iowa for the candidates. So and so. Right. So it can be all kinds of people. But once the, once the number of electoral votes ha- are decided between, between the two candidates, then the electors are committed, sort of by the honor system, to vote appropriately. And they choose electors for both sets of candidates. Okay. In Iowa, we have six electoral votes because four representatives, two senators. The Republicans will choose six potential electors. The Democrats choose Choose six six. potential electors. Let's say it splits four to two Democrats. The Democrats that were listed there, they will get four for them to go to the Electoral College to vote, and the Republicans will get two of their six to go, and they go to a place and vote. So that's the way the Electoral College votes. The purpose of the Electoral College is to recognize that we are a federation of states. That's why states get a vote. Mm. They get the vote. Okay. Right? Yeah. Because remember who ratified the Constitution? Yeah. It was us. I mean, that, that's, really, that's the way the Constitutional Convention went and yeah. the ratification conventions went. So the, the Constitution basically on the Electoral College is saying the states create the federal government. Yes. So the state need to have a say who's running the executive branch. So we want every state to, be, to participate in this process to elect the president. Correct. Okay. I think I know what's, the, what's your argument is if we say, well, we're going to get rid of the Electoral College, the way I'm looking at the population right now in the United States, we have New York, California, Florida, Pennsylvania's high-populated states. Texas. Yeah. yeah, Texas. So what you're saying, Professor, if we get rid of the Electoral College, states like Iowa will never elect a president. Oh, like Wyoming. Yeah. Small states. Nevada. I mean, you can pick all kinds of them. Because if, 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 if I'm a candidate for president, I will not waste my time to go to small states because they're not going to make a big impact None. in my election. You can get the majority in the five in or the six five states, states and, and be, done, be done with. That's right. Now, yeah. what's wrong with that? Civil war? Well, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> That's the first thing I can think of because, I mean, the other states are going to say, okay, it's been four round of election. Enough is enough. 
We had it. That's right. And if you don't go that far, still think about it. The idea is we're all involved in decisions about the government, not just in our city or state, but the national one. National government, yeah. Right? And being proportional to the state population, understand that. Yeah. If it goes the way they'd like, as you say, five or six states, the candidates would just go there. So... What, what, what do the people miss then, the people who want to get rid of the Electoral College? What do they miss? Cause, or is it more political? Well, of course it's political. Everything in the Constitution is Politi- necessarily yeah. political. Yeah, right? that's true. No, with the important fact is we're a compact of states, and that will, that will dilute that idea. We are a confederation. This is a word that's come up now, too. If we didn't like it as a flyover states, who are, we are derisively called, we'll go our own way. Every state has the right to secede. Yeah. The position of being the president of the United States required to be a natural-born citizen. Why did the framers thought that was very important? Is that just to be lawyer? Yes. Loyalty. Okay. That's what it amounts to. Mm. And boy, there's been a lot of debate what a natural born citizen is. What it means, yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's talk about removal of the president because that question is really live now. So it says the president can be removed from office for death, resignation, and we've seen that with Nixon, or inability to discharge the powers and duties of the said office. So in the case of any removal, for any of those reasons, the vice president becomes a president. But we have an interesting case now. What if, for any reason, Biden's not there, and Vice President Harris then becomes a president, then we look at how votes go in the Congress, or Senate in particular. Because Vice President is a president of the Senate, and she can only vote if there's a tie vote. But that's only too probable with the mix we have now. So let's say that Biden is out of the picture, Harris becomes a president, there's no vice president that's available now. Okay, so let's say she appoints somebody. So it goes to the Senate, and we get a 50-50 tie. There's nobody to break the vote. You're stuck. Interesting. You have no vice president. Can the person who is in the line to become, because, okay, so there's vice president, and then I cannot remember what I meant, man, was it? The Speaker of the House is in the line, too. Third, I think. Yeah. Third. Can she automatically become the? No, she cannot, because the Constitution is not saying it, that. It says both have to disappear at the same time. <laughs> yeah. So Interesting I, question. Well, let's hope none of that happens. Yeah. I mean, but you got to try to figure out what the course of events might be, mm-hmm. because it's very possible. Section 2 of Article 2. The President serves as Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy of the United States, right? Yep, and the militia. And the militia of the several states. When they're called in the federal service. Okay, okay, okay. And, of course, we know the President has the power to nominate federal judges. Yes. And for some reason, I never paid attention. I, I was always paying attention of the Supreme Court judges. I was not paying attention how many are the federal judges. Massive number. It's a lot. Yeah. And they always just go unnoticed. They were pretty much noticed 
during Trump's term, in particular, they go through the Judiciary Committee and then they go to the full House. Yeah. There were lots of vacancies for, for the Trump presidency, and there's still quite a few for Biden. So Yeah. Section three, he shall give the State of the Union from the time to time. So the president don't have to give the State of the Union every year. He doesn't. Mm. And he doesn't have to deliver a speech. Yeah, he can just send the, send the letter. Yeah. Because this started what year? when they Because Washington was doing it. And he first. was sending letters. Okay. Yep. And then I cannot remember which president picked up, and they started kind of going in the, in the chamber and talk to them. I, I don't know for sure myself, but it's, quite, it's pretty obvious that they do that once we had radio and TV. Right? Yeah. Because, hey, I got the biggest audience for my stump speech that I could ever find. Yep. So this is what, and they make a big spectacle out of it. And sometimes they even talk about the State of the Union. Uh, the last section, section four. They're talking about impeachment again. Yep. He or she, the president and vice president and other federal officers, can be removed from the office upon impeachment if convicted of treason bribery, and other high crimes and misdemeanors. Yep. And this has been a big conversation about what the high crimes and misdemeanor. And it shouldn't be, because this is a term right out of English law, where it was defined very carefully. So there shouldn't be that way. No crimes is not covered by high crimes and misdemeanors. Oh, really? Well, it isn't. If you don't commit a crime, it can't be either one of those. Are we done with two yeah, we, we, already? It's, it's, it's yeah, not it's, it, dark yet. No, yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> I think you can tell that framers of the Constitution, there were a lot more, I don't know if the word concern is appropriate, about the Congress than the other two branches. Because right. they put a lot in the Congress because it's the representation of the people right. directly mm-hmm. with the people. And probably they were thinking if the Congress can run right, we shouldn't be worrying about the executive branch or the judicial branch. That was, I think, the way they saw it. They wanted to protect the freedom of voting and we'll see speech and all the things that go with that. And they wanted to protect, more essential even, the protect the ability of the citizens to discuss issues and make decisions. That we don't leave it to one guy or a small group of people, monarchy or tyranny mm-hmm. and oligarchy. And we want the country to run by law, which is Congress's prerogative. Yeah. But there's an interesting issue there that we don't think about. Mm. Okay. So what's law? Let, let me put it this way. We would say, well... Law is something, a bill that's passed by the House, the Senate, and signed by the President. That's a law, mm-hmm. and they can force us to obey it. Yeah. Right? Well and good. Okay, so if it's an oligarchy, which in many ways our Supreme Court is, but let's set them aside. Mm-hmm. If, if a small group of people, we'll call them Bill Gates and Zuckerberg and those guys, if they declare a law... They're going to use power to force us to obey it. If we have a tyrant or a dictator, I don't think we'd ever call him king, but 
and they made, they made a rule and they could enforce it, that would be a law. So what's the difference between the three? Or among the three, I guess that's more right. If it's not made by Congress, it's not a law. That's what the Constitution says. There is no difference. It's somebody making rules and forcing you to obey them. You can have one tyrant or a few tyrants or many tyrants, but they're all tyrants. That's a, yeah. That's an interesting thought, right? Mm. There is such a thing as a tyranny of the majority. This will go to your freedom and community yep. issue, too. It's a thin line. It is. Very thin line. Yeah. Very thin line, especially when you start breaking down every small pieces in a society. Let's get to the Article 3, Section 1. Say, the judicial power of the United States shall be vested in one Supreme Court, and in such inferior courts as the Congress may from time to time ordain and establish. The judges, both of the Supreme and inferior courts, shall hold their office during good behavior and shall, at stated times, receive for their services a compensation which shall not be diminished during their continuance in office. So the Constitution is not saying if they should serve for life. Yeah, it does. Uh, they hold their offices during good behavior. There's no end period that's stated in the Constitution. As long as they have good behavior, yeah. they, they can keep going. Right. If you don't impeach them, they keep going. That's the only way you can get them out of there. Also notice it doesn't say how many Supreme Court have. justices. Yep. And so it's called court packing now if you want to add more. But it's perfectly constitutional. I'm yep. not sure. Yeah, you can have as many as you want to. As many as you can get the Congress to agree to. But And there's no reason you couldn't reduce the number. Yeah, because it's not saying anything. That's that's interesting piece you just brought it up. So let's say one if member of the Supreme Court get impeached and get removed. Mm-hmm. The president can say, I don't want to nominate anybody. Sure. Okay. Can't stop him from... Yeah, but I know I don't think the president of the United States will let that one go. Uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't, don't that know. I mean, it go. depends on which one is gone, right? That's, that's true. That's very true. Yeah, he could be better off with the eight that's left. Mm-hmm. What else do you want to cover on this? First? Well, let's, I just want to look at a little chunk of Section 2. Okay. The judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under this Constitution. Mm. It does not say that the Supreme Court can decide whether law is constitutional or not. You've heard my argument already, but I'll repeat it briefly. The ability or right of the Supreme Court to declare laws unconstitutional was grabbed by Chief Justice Justice Marshall in 1813. From then on, the Supreme Court felt free to say, well, you know, that law, because the cases come before them, that law that they're being uh, tried under is unconstitutional, so we get to throw the case out. For a long time, that was resisted. For example, Andrew Jackson said, and I think it was a tariff case, that, okay, the Supreme Court has made their decision. Let's see them enforce it. <laughs> like, if I decide it's not constitutional, I don't have to enforce it because I only have to faithfully execute real laws. So it was resisted for a while, but then it got into be sort of a habit more than anything else. And you have lots of decisions involving the constitutionality of law. And legal systems have a thing called precedence. 
If the case has been decided once, you generally fall back on that decision. So we've got 170 years or something of case law where they've decided constitutionality. So now if you go into a court, court, particularly Supreme Court, getting your case tried, they are likely to go back, almost always go back, to some precedent that some other Supreme Court decision Mm -hmm. was based on or was. Best as I can figure out, that series of constitutionality decisions by the Supreme Court is not the Constitution. What I signed on for, if I signed a social contract, was it's the Constitution or the rules. Not what the Supreme Court says. Right. And especially when you consider we're supposed to have lots of citizen input, nine, well, it wasn't always nine, but we have unelected officials who have a lifetime appointment making those decisions that we have no input into. So this is a fundamental issue, and we're not addressing it. And it needs to be addressed. And I think part of the problem is we're not willing to address fundamental issues like that. We want them to decide law and equity is what the Constitution says. That's not the same as constitutionality. Did you apply the right law? And did the results, if you applied the right law, were they wildly... unjust. Like if you stole a loaf of bread and and you were sentenced to 45 years of hard labor, they might say, you know, no, we're not going to let that stand. So who would decide the constitutionality if it wasn't the Supreme Court? All of us. Not quite. This is a compact of states. Oh, the state. The states were the ones that set up the constitution. Therefore, the states get to decide if any particular law fits in that framework. But we are the state. States. Yeah, but we are part of that. Yes. Yeah. Right? So I'm still right, Professor. Well, I know that. You're (laughs) always right. I've already conceded that. Uh, And and you say, well, that's cumbersome. Yes, but it's the correct legal thing to do. Mm -hmm. We say we're a country of laws, not men, and then we give this vast power to nine men and women, that's not consistent, and it's not that hard of a problem. You could assign, you know, all the ones that were being considered, you send them back to state legislatures, Mm -hmm. and they could either decide themselves on behalf of us, or they could call every year, call a ratification convention kind Mm -hmm. of meeting. The states, then you take a vote of the states, and you see which ones were good and which were bad. That's the fair way to do it. Yeah. So, Article 4 of the Constitution. Yes. Section 1 through 4, I believe. 1 through, yep, 1 through 4. And I'm going to be doing cherry picking here, go Go back and forth. I'm following you. Now, Section 1, explain to me, say, honor and respect other states' laws and court orders, basically? Or you want me to read the whole thing? No, no. Okay. It's the full faith and credit clause you, you have to recognize, each state has to recognize and acknowledge that the public acts, records, and judicial proceedings in all the other states are legitimate. That doesn't mean you have to agree with them at all. Yeah. It just means you have to recognize they have the right to make those decisions and that they would be in effect in each of their states. Right, And you look around the country today, different states have lots of different rules for different things, and that's okay. You just have to recognize that those other states' acts and proceedings are legitimate. So if they say it's a law in their state, it's a law in their state. 
does not it does not mean you gotta follow that law. Oh, not at all. Okay. No, no, no. Okay. Okay. So sounds it, that way though, doesn't it? Yeah, because that's when when I read that, the first thing I was thinking like, well, so does that mean Iowa legalized gay marriage? Does that mean if somebody the gay couple married in Iowa moved to Nebraska, does that mean their marriage is still valid? No, in Nebraska. Okay, so they gotta the, follow the state they, the state are they live, live in. in. Mm, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Section two of uh, Article four: The citizen of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizen in the several states. The first right. thing I thought about this one is about institution. Does that violate the Constitution? I'm not sure what you're talking about. So for 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 public institution like colleges. If I'm if I move from Nebraska, come to Iowa, go to college, I'm not paying in state tuition. I pay outside outside the state tuition. It's the school's choice. School's choice. Okay. Right. So privileges and immunities is an important clause, right? They're they're kind of the general sort of normal rights we all have outside of the Bill of Rights. We can move from state to state. Yeah. We move from city to city in the state. We can, it's okay to get a job. You can apply for work. So those become really important in the 14th Amendment. 13th, 14th, and 15th, they're the post-slavery laws. Yeah. And they're, they're much more careful to articulate that the freed slaves get all the, right. the privileges and immunities of any citizen because they are under the jurisdiction of the United States. Yeah. That's a sticking point in the 14th Amendment, because it says any, any child born to parents in a state in the United States and who is under the jurisdiction of the United States, which means freed slaves, that child is a citizen of the United States. Yeah, but, yeah. We'll, 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 we'll dig into that a little bit in depth when we get to the 14th Amendment. If we do. If we get to the 14th <laughs> Amendment. Uh, Person charging in any state, okay, we, I'm still on the section two, Article Four, Section Two. Person charging in any state with treason, felony, or other crime who shall flee from justice and be found in another state shall, on demand of the executive authority of the state from which he fled, be delivered up to be removed to the state having jurisdiction of the crime. So they were trying to make sure people do not commit crime from one state and go hide in another state. Exactly. And. Uh, not get get out of there. Yeah, there's no non-extradition clauses between states. Mm. Uh, clause three, that no person held to service or labor in one state under the laws thereof escaping into another, escaping into another, shall in consequences of any law or regulation therein be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered up on claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due. Now, there's a lot of discussion about this clause here with the attachment to 1793 Fugitive Slave Law. That's what it's about. Okay. It's exactly what it's about. Okay. This also gave rise to a a concept we'll probably talk about later, state nullification. Talk about it. Okay, let's talk about it. As people in the northern states became more critical of the idea of slavery at all. We have the abolition movement in the Northeast, but throughout the North, there's real concern that the idea of a human being being considered property is just 
horribly Christ. obnoxious and unchristian and all kinds of bad. There's a famous case in Wisconsin. A slave was taken to Wisconsin by his master, I think, and while he was there, he ran away from his master and, and claimed he was free because there's no slavery in Wisconsin, yeah. right? And so the guy went to the sheriff and said, look, here's my slave. He claims he's free, but he's my property. You got to give him back. Well, the citizens of the town, and I'm sorry, I can't remember which town it was because these people deserve a lot of praise, said, no, you can't have him. You were not going to allow you to take him back to slavery. Okay, so now they got a legal problem. (laughs) In the Constitution, it says you got to give him back. Yeah. So now comes the recourse to nullification. And this came up much earlier. And the idea of state nullification of federal law is, was promulgated by, get this, Jefferson and Madison. And they wrote one for each state of Kentucky and Virginia. They were called the Virginia Resolutions and the Kentucky Resolutions that claimed on behalf of those states that a federal law that those states didn't want enforced in their territory could be nullified. The states get to decide, the individual states get to decide if those laws are constitutional. Now, what argument could they possibly have for that? Well, who ratified the The Constitution? The states. The states. So who gets to be the final judge? The state. The states. And that makes a lot more sense than having nine elected officials, unelected officials, who are lifetime appointees, unaccountable to anybody, deciding what's constitutional. Originally, it was the states, and in a meeting of the state citizens or representatives of them, that decided what the Constitution was going to say. So all the way down the line, it seems like it should be the states who get to decide what that Constitution means. Mm Section 3, new states may be admitted by the Congress into this union. That's kind of self-explanatory. Right. Only, the only Congress can uh, admit new states. But no new state shall be formed or erected within jurisdiction. What are they talking about that? Like Iowa cannot create another state within Iowa? Correct. Let me okay. give you a real example. During the Civil War, Virginia was the territory of, and state of Virginia. was a state. Yeah. Got divided into two Virginia and West Virginia. And there's a process. Congress has to approve it. The rest of the state has to approve it by ballot. Oh, so the citizen of the state has to vote. Yeah. Okay. But they didn't. In Virginia's case, there was a civil war going on. (laughs) And they didn't let the citizens of the Confederate Virginia vote at all. So, in my opinion, again, if you're going to have this law, you should follow it and... There should be no West Virginia. It should all be Virginia. I don't want to go too far into this. Why did they want to divide the state? So so that they could have some of the resources in northern, old northern Virginia, right? Mm. Like Harper's Ferry was an important place. Yeah. Right? Railroads and so on. Robert E. Lee. Yeah. As as a federal general who put down John Brown, Brown, which is really ironic, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Section 4, the United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government and shall protect each of them against the invasion and on application of the legislature or of the executive 
against domestic violence. So it says that the, the United States will protect each of them against invasion. Is this opening of the southern border an invasion or not? The, the Republicans tend to say it's an invasion. Oh. The Democrats tend to say, well, it's just a bunch of immigration. Uh, Article 5. So soon? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm trying to get through the whole Constitution. I know. We, yeah. got a lot. we still got a ways to go. So Article 5, the framers give us the ways to amend the Constitution because they knew things were going to change in the future. Yes. And they wanted to give us the way to actually adapt to the changes. The Congress, whenever two-thirds of the both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution, or on the application of the legislature of two-thirds of the several states shall call a convention for proposing amendments, which in either case shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of this Constitution, when ratified by the legislature of three-fourths of the several states, or by convention in three-fourths thereof, as the one or the other mode of ratification may be proposed by the Congress, provided that no amendment which may be made prior to the year 1880 shall in any manner affect the first and fourth clause in the, in the ninth section of the first article, and that no state without its consent shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. Yeah, There's a so lot going on now. This is a hot one, too, right, mm-hmm. these days. And it's been a hot one for quite a while. I remember uh, I was at a meeting of uh, people who were a lot smarter than I was and am down in Alabama. And, and at that time, it was a question of should we call a state's convention, convention yeah. to enact balanced budget amendment. So it was a really interesting discussion and that's the one part of it never been used before since the Constitution was put in place. Correct. There's pros and cons to that, right? Obviously, the best way to change our understanding of the Constitution is change the actual words to reflect what current conditions are. Because we said a long time ago in our discussion that the Constitution is a syngrama. Mm-hmm. should read the same way every time. So we, we don't have layers of interpretation that we're consulting rather than the Constitution. But you have to be able to change the words. But remember how the words got approved. States had to approve them. Yep. So now this is a method that we can go back and say, well, times have changed. We have different issues. We can't exactly apply the words that are there, but we don't want people interpreting them. So you, got to, you have to have a consistent way to change the Constitution. Now, it's pretty straightforward if you're going to just have both houses suggest amendments mm-hmm. and then send them out to the states for approval. That's yeah. just the way the Constitution was approved. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I, I, I start studying this piece, the Convention of the State, actually, maybe, I don't know, a couple months ago, after I would start thinking about, okay, definitely the Congress is not going to pass the term limits amendment. They will propose it. But I don't think it's going to get anywhere. So and, the, and then the Supreme Court ruled it was unconstitutional. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> People who have lifetime appointments. So, and, and I was like, well, so what do we do then? And then when I started reading about this convention of the state, I was like, I, thought, I think that was brilliant. 
actually to put it in there. It looks like a way out. Yeah, it looks only like, and then I started reading George Mason supposedly is the one who proposed it because he asked the delegates. Suppose it was on September 15th. 1787, two days before they left. Not that you're keeping track or anything. <laughs> no, no, no. no. <laughs> no. Who's, 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 who's counting? Right. Yeah. And, and then he asked the delegates, like, so are we being naive here to think the Congress will never become abusive and will never go above and beyond their power? We, we have to find some remedy here for the states to control the Congress. And that's when they came up with that idea. And there's a movement right now. Is going. Yep, it's been more or less running since the 70s. Yeah, I think it's, 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 it's tough, and maybe I think the framers wanted to be that way. Yeah, it should always be tough to change a constitution. constitution. Yeah. But there was a lot of support for a balanced budget amendment. And it says here you have to get some percentage of the states. Yeah, three fourths. So, uh, no, I mean, two thirds to call the convention right. and then three fourths to uh, ratify. So, so, over a period of time, they got two thirds. Mm. And, then, and then the Congress, who gets to decide, <laughs> said, well, some of those were so old, they're not viable anymore, so we're not counting them. Right, so Congress has ways of... To throw a monkey wrench in a system. Yes, because they still have a role. And so, especially if they think you're going to restrain them, right? Yeah. And that was Wood's spending bill, or term limits is a great example. Mm-hmm. They're going to throw monkey, monkey wrenches everywhere. Yeah. Okay, so that's an issue. Another issue, what's going to be the composition... We know of the state legislators because they're elected by states in the usual way, but what if they have a convention? What do you mean? How is it going to work? For example, let's say Iowa decides to have a convention, Mm -hmm. which I think is the fairest way myself. So people have to sign up to run for it. So let's say you, Eric, you, you get your name on the ballot, however that happens to be. And you're ready to go campaigning, right? And so to campaign, because this is for the whole state, right? You're going to be running around all over the state, talking to people, trying to secure their votes and their money so that you can travel, Mm -hmm. for example, or put up yard signs or whatever. So is there anybody in the state who's already organized and has lots of money to do that sort of thing? There are two groups that are already prepared to do that sort of thing. The Republicans and the Democrats. They got lots of money. They've got the ability to recruit candidates. And guess who their first recruits are going to be? Their party members. Well, not only that, they're going to be their party members who've already been elected to the federal Congress. No, we don't want that. No, that kind of defeats the whole idea. Yeah, defeat, yeah. But we don't know how many people would be elected anyway at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe you have to have for a convention 100, let's say. They, they could only get what we only have six in Congress. Mm-hmm. So, but, you know, they're going to be able to elect a lot of their party members. Yeah. And so it'll all be split along party lines under the leadership of our current congressional offices. Where does that leave Eric? in his campaign to be in the convention. Oh, yeah. You, you can't compete with that unless you're independently wealthy. Yeah, well, true. you're okay then. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
Yeah, we'll, we'll see how that played out because I think they have 15 states right now. They already passed the application. I'd like to see it get to that point and have yeah. it approved just to see how it will work for us. Mm-hmm. And if it works for us, we'll see lots more of it. Because, yeah, and, and I, like you say, because the Constitution tells the Congress shall call the convention when we get to the 34 states. Right. But like you say, because right now the first state was Georgia to pass, and that was 2014. So who knows by the time we get to 34 states, it might be 2029. Yeah. And the Congress can say, ah, Georgia, that was a long time ago. Right. They can throw, even though there's nothing saying in the Constitution, there's a time limit. Right. That you can say, oh, that was 10 years ago. Anyway, uh, Article 6. Ah, yes, we're moving along yeah, we're, now. We're, yeah. we're, we're moving, man. Uh, all debts contracted and engagement entered into before the adoption of this Constitution shall be as valid against the United States under this Constitution as under the Confederation. Right. So they did not want to run away from their obligations. Right, just because they're changing they the form of the government, form, form that of doesn't change the debt. Just because they're committing treason. They should not just run away. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're getting almost sarcastic. <laughs> this Constitution and the laws of the United States which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States shall be the supreme law of the land. We should stop there for a second. Mm. We don't have any trouble of the laws passed pursuant to the Constitution, which means in agreement, as near as I can tell. But this clause, and all treaties made, or which shall be made, because a lot of people are saying, you know, this uh, Great Reset Agenda, or Agenda 2021 or 2020, whatever it was, a United Nations document since we signed a treaty to form the United Nations, that's a treaty with us, and that ought to be our law. Mm. That's argued. So, but they, it, to be pursuant, it's got to be consistent. To the so anything in there that's not consistent with the Constitution has to be thrown out, mm-hmm. right? Because the Constitution is the highest law of the land. A lot of these decisions are trying to determine what the words mean so you can see if the law is consistent with those words. And people are going to look at them differently. Mm-hmm. Times do change. Yeah. We could have different circumstances. So the idea that we have to be able to say definitively what the words are yeah. and what they mean mm-hmm. so we can implement the proper laws is a critical issue. It's so critical that that every step along the way, the founder said, you know, people have to talk that over publicly and make decisions. So what do we do? We abandon that since 1813, as a matter of fact, and say we're going to have nine unelected judges make those decisions for us. Mm. That's inconsistent, right? Talking about nine judges. So it continues, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby. Anything in the Constitution or laws of any states to the contrary, notwithstanding. Just like what you're talking about. Yep. The senators and representatives before mentioned, and the members of several state legislatures and all executive and judicial officers, both of the United States and of the several states, shall be bound by oath or affirmation to support this Constitution. No religious test shall ever be required as a qualification to any office or public trust under the United States. And we'll see this on the First Amendment. 
Right, and that's, that's oh, as so much of our Constitution is, a holdover from English history. They used to have religious tests for offices. Particularly if you were Catholic, you might as well just forget about ever holding public office or being able to go to university or have a government job. Mm. That's right. And people rightly said, well, that's not really just and fair. And yeah. so they prohibited that. And that's what this clause is to prohibit. Yeah. Don't they, go back to those old ways. Article 7, the last one. The ratification of the conventions of nine states shall be sufficient for the establishment of this constitution between the states. So ratify the same. It happened. Yeah. Right? Nine, nine states. Eleven, right. actually. Virginia was a little slow. Rhode Island was a year slow. Yeah. But ultimately all 13. And notice that they didn't force Rhode Island into the compact. Rhode Island says, well, we haven't decided yet. They said, okay, well, when you get around deciding, let us know. They were an independent country for that year. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Professor. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Eric. Well, that's all we have for today, man. Thank you for listening to Classroom Podcast. Until next time. Be safe.